You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. The scripture reading from this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attained the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church family. It is so good to be with you and to open up God's word together to seek comfort and hope and assurance together in the midst of trying times. And so let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come before you today recognizing how how blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners or join with the mockers. Instead, Lord, may we delight in your instruction found in your word. Would we meditate upon it day and night? And Father, would you plant us firmly by streams of water like, like a tree? May those roots run deep. And God, would you produce in us fruit in its season, cause us not to wither, but to flourish in everything that we do. Father, for your glory, your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the Super Bowl is upon us, and as we gather in probably not the ways that we would expect necessarily to mark that day, I I imagine that a lot of us are approaching from a variety of viewpoints. So maybe just by way of show of hands, who watches the game mainly for the game itself? All right, how about who watches for the commercials? What about for the halftime show? Okay, how about who just enjoys the food? Maybe we should include who doesn't care. (laughs) Well, many churches are like a football game. I've heard it said before, 22 people on the field desperately in need of rest and hundreds in the stands desperately in need of exercise. And how true is that? So often the church is treated like a spectator sport. 
Although, honestly, this pandemic has changed that notion in a lot of ways. There's much less room for this sort of this spectator notion. But this forces us, though, to ask the question, is there a better way? And I believe that there is. That's what Paul envisions in Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. Here we discover what we might call five distinguishing features of a gospel-advancing church. A church that is fully in the game, that is being used by God to push back the forces of darkness and to advance His gospel among all people. Now, this isn't intended to be an exhaustive list of those distinguishing marks, but certainly more of the New Testament fills out this rich portrait of what a gospel-advancing church looks like. But this is a great place to start. So diving in the into the text here together. First, a gospel-advancing church is marked by united diversity. United diversity. The sweeping theme of Ephesians is the unity of the church in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the plan of God. We have moved from who we are in Christ in chapters 1 through 3 to how to live in Christ in chapters 4 through 6. Here in, uh, earlier in Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6, we find an exhortation to live worthy of our calling by maintaining the unity of the Spirit based on the oneness of the triune God. Christian unity, as we saw last week, it begins with our divine calling. It depends upon Christ-like character, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. It should be an urgent concern. That is something that we fiercely guard and it rests upon gospel confession. We saw those seven oneness statements that concluded that passage. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. After discussing the urgent concern of guarding unity and the beliefs we should, that we should be united around, Paul lays out then the means per, for preserving the unity of the body the use of various gifts in the church. So look with me starting at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul continues the theme of grace as a gift not only in salvation, as he shows us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but for ministry as well. Earlier in Ephesians 3, verse 2, Paul writes, of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And so, for believers in Jesus Christ, we might say that we are twice graced. Twice graced. We have received not only the grace in salvation, but also we receive the grace to minister, a, a grace gift to serve in the body of Christ. And in saying that this grace was given to each one of us, Paul is emphasizing that all believers receive this grace gift. All believers receive this and are to carry out the ministry of the church. It's not just limited to a select few who use, who use these gifts. No, these gifts are given as Christ sees fit by sheer grace, not based on our virtue, not based on what we merit or achieve. According to the measure of Christ's gift, reminds us that the amount of the gift itself can differ from one believer to another, and that it is Christ that 
determines the amount. In verse 8, Paul then anchors Christ's giving of divine gifts, grace gifts, to what has been previewed in Psalm 68, verse 18. Verse 8, therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You know, Paul was deeply formed by the Psalms, so much so that a third of his quotations and allusions in the New Testament are from the Psalms. And I have to admit, a lot of ink has been spilled over the difference in wording between this quotation and how it appears in the Hebrew text, what is, what is mirrored in, if you flip in your Bible to, to uh, Psalm 68, verse 18, you might recognize subtle differences, that of especially in receiving gifts versus giving gifts. There, there could be a, a reason for this. It could be that Paul was aware of some unknown tradition, maybe that's lost to us, or that he adapted the psalm to make his point here, or that he was, and we see this often actually among New Testament writers, summarizing the entire psalm and what he says here. But it's worth noting that the imagery of this reference is compatible. In Psalm 68, we're given this picture of a parading, a victor parading um, after some marked victory of some sort, receiving the tribute and plunder from those that he defeated, but then also parading up to, ascending up to some high point, perhaps even the temple. And Paul's point is in keeping with this image. Christ himself has conquered and plundered his enemies and now freely gives gifts to his people as the conquering king. And so in in verses 9 through 10, Paul further explains or unpacks Psalm 68, verse 18, and, and expands on this phrase, he ascended. Look, look, check this out. And actually what's interesting about this is that it's marked, it's kind of a, a parenthetical statement. You, you might notice this in your, in your Bible where it's surrounded by parentheses. But Paul writes, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. The descending in this explanation has been taken in different ways throughout history. Some have taken this to support Christ descending into hell between his death and resurrection. But more likely, this is a reference to his descending in his incarnation, his renunciation, first of all, of the heavenly realities, in his incarnation, suffering, death, and even burial. Think of how Paul takes this same notion up in Philippians 2. The, hum- the humility of Christ, but then also the exaltation of Christ. His ascent is his exaltation in his resurrection, his ascension in his exalted position at the right hand of God the Father. What's more, the imagery of this the host of captives in Psalm 68, and also in saying far above all the heavens, signals Christ's victory over the enemies of Satan, sin, and death, these whom he plundered. And now as the ascended victor, he has the right to give gifts and freely does so for the purpose of filling all things. That should 
that language should remind us of Ephesians 1 verse 10, that of the, that coming day the, when, when everything will be summed up in Christ, things in heaven above and on earth below. And so here at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul ties together in a really beautiful way two main parts, two main emphases of his letter. The theme of God's triumph in Christ over hostile powers and the theme of unity in the body of Christ. Unity in Christ through the church. In Christ's descent to earth and ascent to heaven, he triumphed over cosmic enemies. And from his position of victory, he distributes diverse gifts to his people in order to foster their unity. So let's think about a football team again. You know, there are different types of players and positions and skills and abilities. Yes, even kickers. There are also plenty of unsung heroes who may not necessarily show up in the highlight reel. And so it is in the church. Each one has received the gift of grace and salvation, and each one has also received a grace gift or spiritual gift as we have come to call them. Believers in Jesus Christ are twice graced. Christ distributes these gifts as well as the amount of the gift as he sees fit. And this should free us. This should free us from jealousy, from knowing that he, his wisdom is what has gone into distributing the gifts as he sees fit. We should also see how this diversity of gifts is grounded within the church's unity. Unity does not mean uniformity. This diversity promotes, lifts up the unity of the body of Christ. The gifts are given for the edifying and the enriching of the entire church. The church does not exist just for our own benefit. Think about going through a, a grocery store and filling up your shopping cart, and yet that's how so many people approach church. No, the gifts are to be used to bless and serve others. So rather than consumers filling up our Shopping carts, we are to be contributors, using the gifts that God has given us to love and serve one another. A gospel-advancing church is marked by united diversity. Second, a gospel-advancing church is marked by gifted responsibility. Just as Paul explained or expanded on the phrase, he ascended, in verses 8 through 10, he now expands on the phrase, he gave, in verse 11. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Here Paul provides examples of these grace gifts, but notice that the emphasis is more on the gifted people rather than on the gifts themselves. And we need to remember that this is not an exhaustive list. And certainly other passages like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4 round out a full list of spiritual gifts. There may even be more that aren't necessarily listed there. It's fascinating. This is just kind of a, a side note, but it's fascinating to me to even see what gifts are emphasized in different contexts. And so for the church in and around Ephesus, Paul chooses to focus on the gifts that overlap with the ministry of the word. 
There are five types of gifted people, or functions we might call them, that he lists here. And so first, apostles. Apostles were originally those who had direct experience of the risen Christ and were commissioned by him specifically to proclaim his message and to establish the church. If you think about Paul's background, he was welcomed into this group after being visited suddenly by the resurrected Christ on the road, on the Damascus road. Earlier in Ephesians 2, 20 and 3 verse 5, Paul highlights the foundational role that the apostles played in the building up of the church. So very, very similar to the apostles then are the prophets as well. The prophets were directly inspired and instructed much like the apostles. They were endowed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy and communicated a message from God that met the church in whatever situation it was facing. The prophets are also a part of this same foundational group that Paul highlights earlier in Ephesians. Evangelists, then, are those who proclaimed the gospel both outside and inside the church. People like Philip in Acts 21 and Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. So if you look at the first three gifted responsibilities, evangelists were were those that won new converts. Apostles were the ones that established churches. And prophets were the ones who filled in the revelation that was needed. You can see, even here with these first three, the, the overlapping in their functions. Fourth, shepherds. The shepherds, or pastors, were those tasked with watching over and nurturing the church. In the Old Testament, kings and judges were the ones that were given the responsibilities to shepherd God's people. In the New Testament, then that shifts to the elders in the church. Shepherds ministered to weak and wearied souls. They exhorted believers and oversaw local assemblies. By the way, a strong case can be made here for the linking of the last two gifted people, that of shepherd teacher, that being perhaps a single gift. Personally, I, I, I still stand in the in the category of seeing these as as separate gifts, but very much um, overlapping one another. So for teachers, the teachers were those who, who took the teachings of the apostles and the prophets and then applied them to local congregations. They helped instruct and apply God's revelation to the life of the church. So remember, these gifts seem to overlap quite a bit in the New Testament. Jesus himself is pictured as both shepherd and teacher. Paul is an apostle, preacher, and teacher. And Peter was called not only to to be a pastor, but he also refers to himself as a fellow elder. So rather than trying to kind of make hard distinctions about this gift versus that gift and what the responsibilities are, it, it might be best to see them as like five overlapping circles, although with the focus on the ministry of the Word. In in the football analogy, the leaders are like team captains. They are chosen from among the team and lead by example as they themselves, as they play in the game itself. Perhaps another analogy, not quite as common anymore, but would be the player coach, but 
but we don't, like I said, we don't see those quite as much anymore. But I, I think that whole notion of, or that, that idea of a, um, a team captain, or se- actually NFL teams have several team captains. How do we see these gifts, though, demonstrated today? It's worth noting that they are not as separate or maybe as cut and dry as we might think. They are absolutely connected in the ministry of the word and in proclaiming God's gospel. Are there apostles and prophets today? Perhaps not in the foundational sense, but there are certainly people sent with a God-given mission or task. Modern-day apostles might be seen in establishing churches in areas that have never been reached before by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are evangelists? We might consider them the obstetricians of the church. They might have, you know, gotten a bad rap, or we might have, that word evangelist might have gotten a bad rap due to the abuses of evangelists in modern times, but these are more like modern-day missionaries. Just because, though, you don't have the gift of evangelism, we should point out, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't evangelize. For shepherds or pastors, these are the guardians of the church. They provide oversight and comfort and guidance. You know, here at EBF, our conviction is that the terms elder and pastor and overseer are used interchangeably in the New Testament and that they point to one single role. What we might, one way of breaking it down though is that shepherding and overseeing could be seen as two functions of what it means to serve as an elder. This is actually part of, maybe to, to lift the hood a little bit, this is part of why we have two gatherings per month as an elder team. One of those gatherings is given for our role as overseers, and one of those gatherings is, is centered on our role as shepherds. And I have to just say, I have seen this gift. I have seen this gift of shepherding demonstrated in both Jeff and Danny, who are, who are on staff here at EBF. So not only pastors, but then teachers. Teachers are like the pediatricians of the church, helping these recent converts to have those roots run deeper. It is central to our task in disciple-making that we teach people to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. And this should be part of our concern for transferring or passing on the faith. 2 Timothy 2.2 gives us a picture of this, this transference, this generation to generation, passing on, teaching others the faith. It is indispensable for building up the church. It is necessary for helping believers also identify what is false doctrine and to be able to, to sink their teeth into what is true, to savor Christ and to focus on what is true. Do you sense any of these gifts? Have you felt God tugging at your own heart in some of these ways? We would certainly love to help you explore these types of gifts. And I'm grateful for those who helped identify and cultivate those gifts in me, took a chance on me. If these are things that you have been wrestling with or perhaps um, wondering what God might be up to, we would love to walk alongside you, help, help see if these might be gifts that God has placed upon you.
a gospel-advancing church is marked by gifted responsibility. I can't help but think, too, of, of the responsibility on, on Matt Wright as one of our new elders that we just had the privilege of commissioning. Praise God for gifted leaders in the church. Third, a, a gospel-advancing church is marked by mobilized ministry. Mobilized ministry. Now, even with using a football reference throughout my message, I had to throw in an army, <laughs> an army reference in there somewhere. A mobilized ministry. In verse 12, Paul makes the responsibility of these gifted people clear. It says this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. To equip here means to make adequate or to cause to be fully furnished. So picture, say, like a house or an apartment. Equipping basically means to go about fully furnishing the place for whoever's going to occupy that home or that space. And that's what these gifted leaders are tasked with doing, to fully furnish the people of God, everything that they need in order to use their gifts for the work of the ministry. They are to equip the saints, that is all of God's people, all of God's holy ones, for the work of the ministry in all of its various facets. This work of the ministry by every believer is then for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Think again of, of a football team. And here's where, like in any analogy, it starts to break down a little bit. But the difference is that everyone in the church, everyone in the church should be in the game. No one should be on the sidelines. And certainly no one who is a part of the church should be a mere spectator. The ones, the ones actually watching should be the surrounding community, our friends, maybe family members, colleagues, who are taking note of how we love one another, or perhaps how we don't love one another, and are taking note too of how we love and serve the city. And guess what? The community, our family, our friends, our colleagues, they can also spot a bad team pretty easily. to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. These verses have been taped to the top of my computer monitor for years. It, they force me to ask the question of who have I equipped today? It is so vitally important that we recognize that we are all ministers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. As leaders, do we hold do we hold the cards close to our chest? Do we promote the mentality that ministry is only for a privileged few? Rather than limiting ministry to a trained, privileged class, every member of the local church should be doing their part in mobilized ministry. We could call it deployed ministry. And that is my heart for EBF, is to cultivate a you-can-do-this culture. Does that make sense? To cultivate, uh, you could put that in quotation marks. You can do this, culture. 
you can learn Greek. Some of you might be saying, yeah, right. But guess what? You can do this. That is the type of environment that I long for in our churches, that you can do this. And that as leaders that we would be given to, that we would not hold these cards close to our chest, but that we would, that we would help propel people forward in mobilized ministry. That we would also invert what we might call the discipleship funnel. We tend to think of discipleship as beginning with large numbers of people, and then as they move forward in maturity, and then eventually to service and, and multiplication, that the number gets smaller and smaller. But our heart is to invert that. That those who move forward, that we would be a mobilized congregation and seeing disciple-making spread throughout our community and across the world. I should just note here that um, I think this pandemic has revealed quite a bit about how perhaps, not just in our church, but I've seen this in churches throughout the country, that we've limited many of the gifts or the, the exercise of those gifts to a Sunday morning environment. The reality is that the church has left the building. And so how would he have us build others up? I think there's room for creative thinking here. I've seen so many of these gifts exercised in new and creative ways and how our church has loved and, and served one another in really un, unprecedented times. Remember again, this is all so that the body of Christ would be built up. And that's where Paul is going here next. This is never for self-edification, but for the edifying of the entire body of Christ. And so a gospel advancing church is marked by growing maturity. A gospel advancing church is marked by growing maturity. Look at verses 13 and 14. First, actually verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's kind of three stair steps of maturity that we see in this verse alone. Each one seems to build upon the next one in sequence. And so first, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the same word for unity that Paul has used up earlier in verse 3. And the faith is similar to what he has mentioned in verse 5 as well of this chapter. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Gifted leaders prepare believers for this final goal. Unity of the faith comes with the realization that we have one faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Growing in our knowledge of God means knowing Christ personally and understanding all that he did and taught. And so building on that, the next step here in this growth and maturity is to to mature manhood. This actually will contrast quite significantly with what we'll see in verse 14, that of infants. And what stands out to me especially is that the singular word is used here, man, rather than the plural, infants. We are to be united in our maturity. We tend to think, and I, I admit that I'm guilty of this too, we tend to think of spiritual maturity in individual terms. But the emphasis is on the importance of the body growing together as one united entity. 
And so from the unity of the faith, a mature manhood, and then to the measure of the stature of the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I just think about growing up and often um, going back to back with my father, comparing my height to see how I was doing in, relation to, in relationship to him. And that's almost what's pictured here. Jesus Christ is the standard for maturity that we should aspire to. When we, maybe even in the church leadership world, whatever, when we talk about things like the profile of a maturing Christian adult and put together kind of this, what, we, what do we want to be true in the life of a, of a maturing Christian I'm a maturing Christian adult. We can, like I said, we can often put together kind of this, this profile and these key points, these key factors. Let's simplify it. The profile of a maturing Christian is Jesus. And as the church is filled with Christ, the stature of the church increases. The stature of the church increases. Think again about football players growing and their abilities, their talents, and then their skills. Think also about um, how this contributes to the entire team seeing greater success as a result. When each player grows in their skills and their talents and abilities, it lifts up the entire team and they are able to see victory. Oh, that victory. Only when Jesus comes again. Will we be fully mature? Gifted leaders are given to carry out the functions of verse 12 until Christ's coming brings the church to its full and complete maturity. But this should not give us a defeatist mentality. The word until here, the word until in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity, could also be toward the goal toward which we should move, toward the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So from this kind of sweeping and soaring verse, Paul breaks it down for us a little bit and gives us actually a negative example in his, in his um, unpacking of growing maturity. He gives us a negative example there in verse 14. Let's look at that a little bit more closely. It says this, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Attaining to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ here is contrasted with immaturity, with vulnerability, with infants, think about, think about that picture. It's actually, it's a very vivid image. I just picture my children, when they were even younger, how just wobbly and unstable they were. How easily they ran into things. <laughs> That's probably a little bit of a morbid image, but their short attention span. How easily they are lured. Paul has a way of... Um, piling on metaphors. And here he actually introduces one of wind and waves of a tumultuous water. He talks about 
being tossed by the waves, anchorless amidst the storms of life, going wherever the winds blow. And so there is a vulnerability here. There's a vulnerability here. We are, those who are not growing in maturity are vulnerable to those with evil intent. People, even certain types of cunning and deceiving people. You know, we often, maybe you've heard this phrase before, you're only as strong as your weakest link. That too could probably be an armyism, I'm not sure. But um, in the sports world too, you think about how underdeveloped players can be key vulnerabilities. The opponents on the football field are like those engaging in cunning and deceitful schemes, but also evil spiritual forces that are in play. A gospel-advancing church pushes back on those not only in their deceitful schemes, but on the spiritual forces of darkness. Recognizing that younger members, those who are younger in the faith, are, are vulnerable. The New Living Translation renders this. It says, We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. You know, everything in this verse seems to point toward instability and immaturity, not being like children. I think is what Paul is emphasizing here, that we not be like children going through different crazes, different fads. I can't help but think even around Christmas time, how many different fads there have been, different gifts that have been the gift to give at Christmas time. But how easy is it for us to be lured by those latest crazes, those latest fads? One example that we come up against quite frequently is that of the prosperity gospel. Certainly, um, a, a teaching that is troubling the global church. Rather than being lured, rather than continuing in this state of immaturity and instability, a gospel-advancing church is marked by humble orthodoxy. Humble orthodoxy. In verse 15, Paul moves from infants to grown-ups. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. I can't help but think about the description of Jesus in John's gospel full of grace and truth. This whole idea here, speaking the truth, the word behind that could also be not just truth speaking, but truth living. Our lives should embody, should demonstrate the truth that we proclaim. And there is the need for both truth and Love. Humble orthodoxy is one of our ethos statements here at ABF. We describe it as how we firmly hold to the truth while gently and lovingly proclaiming it. One of the ways this kind of beautifully wraps into the text that we're looking at here this morning is that the artwork 
behind humble orthodoxy is that of an anchor, and that anchor is the cross. And so amidst, in verse 14, amidst being tossed to and fro, the the wind and the waves that can carry us about by every wind of doctrine, we are anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let's think about this phrase, humble orthodoxy. Think about horseback riding for, for a moment. Picture one stirrup as humble and the other as orthodoxy. Or to use what Paul has here, love and truth. We can so easily, easily fall off on one side or the other. Those who are stronger in humility but struggle, struggle in orthodoxy can be tempted to water down the word or wiggle out of opportunities, perhaps, to speak the truth in love. And those who are stronger in orthodoxy but struggle with humility might be more interested in, in winning the argument while showing little care or concern for the whole person. Instead, oh church, we need to stay in the saddle, maintaining both humility and orthodoxy. May our lives be characterized by this sort of truth and love that helps us grow in maturity. The head, that is Jesus Christ, he leads, he guides, and directs the body. And so we are tasked with, in essence, it's like a a growing to match our head. That that might sound really weird, but I just think about, (laughs) I'm just going to go there. The for children, the, the disproportionate size of their head, their head relative to the rest of their body. That's almost like what's pictured here is that Jesus is the head and we are growing up to match the head that we have. And so honoring Jesus should be our goal. But Jesus himself is our source and our goal. From individuals in verses 14 to 15, actually, Paul then summarizes this entire passage by moving to the entire church, the whole body. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here the emphasis once more is on the whole body, joined and held together. Joined and held together. Think back to what Paul's talked about. This this joining and holding together is between Jews and Gentiles combined now into the one body. And this joining and holding together is also used surrounding the various gifts that we have within the body of Christ. The sort of unity that Paul speaks of here is is a cohesive unity, a sticky unity. And actually, the next phrase here could, could perhaps best be rendered joined, or at least what's in the ESV is joined and held together by every supporting contact. Or, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm losing it here. What does it say? Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped um, could actually be rendered joined and held together by every supporting contact every supporting contact, the unity and growth of the body can only occur when we are in contact with other members of the body. 
Now, that might not be the best language to use right now in the midst of this pandemic, but I hope you get the idea. We must be in contact with one another. Other translations kind of highlight the stickiness of that by using every supporting ligament. Each member of the body should function properly in order for the entire body to grow. You know, another example to think about in relationship with this is that of of liver cells. There is a problem if they aren't working properly. The body can suffer because uh, other parts can't replace that function. But there's also a problem if they are working too much. Ultimately, this can do harm to the body. And so, think about this again. When, when each part is working properly, there's an importance not only of being in the game in the first place, but there's an importance here to not dominating the game. Do we exercise our gifts in such a way that it doesn't leave room for others to exercise theirs? I know for me, for me personally, this is part of what fuels my desire to have to have others preach the gospel, cultivating those gifts in others as well. And may that same, may that, may that be said of all of us in ministry together, that we not exercise those gifts in such a way that it doesn't leave room for others to exercise theirs. Oh, church, this passage ends on a note of love, the all-important ingredient. Love has the last word. Children grow best in an atmosphere of love. And so the church advances in an atmosphere of love between believers in Jesus Christ. And so if we put this all together, kind of like a a bottom line for us to consider is that a a gospel-advancing church is marked by united diversity, gifted responsibility, mobilized ministry, growing maturity, and humble orthodoxy. Did you catch that movement in this passage? It moves from unity to diversity and to maturity. And actually, unity is baked back into that maturity. Unity and diversity leads to maturity. The unity that is spoken of here is that which is already given to us in Christ. But we are moving toward the full unity that is to come when Jesus Christ is revealed in glory. Every Christian has a vital part to play. This is the grace that has been given to us by the risen and ascended Christ. I hope that you caught, even in these verses, a a magnificent description of the gospel itself. That Christ descended in humiliation, in his leaving all the privileges of heaven and coming to earth, living sinlessly in obedience, suffering dying on the cross and being buried. But he then ascended in exaltation from his resurrection, conquering sin and death, defeating evil spiritual forces, ascended to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the Father where he now serves as our high priest and advocate. And so we are a people who are twice graced. We have received grace by being saved and we receive grace for ministry. So get in the game. Know your gift. Use your gift. 
Some questions for us to ponder is what ministry can you contribute toward the advancement of the church? What training would be helpful in your area of ministry? What direction, perhaps from the head, from Christ, are we resisting or neglecting in our ministry? Oh, church, a gospel-advancing church is marked by unity, is marked by united diversity, gifted responsibility, mobilized ministry, growing maturity, and humble orthodoxy. May that be said of Evanston Bible Fellowship and Lord Jesus, we look forward to your humble return, your glorious return. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ, he who descended on our behalf and who has now ascended and gives these gifts so graciously for the building up of the church. Lord Jesus, you who have secured our salvation, you who give these gifts, we praise you for giving gifted leaders in your church. We pray for our leaders, God, that they would be strengthened, that they would have all of the grace needed to serve and to serve selflessly and to serve in love. And Father, I, I put myself in that, in among them, Lord, would you help us to equip the saints for the work of the ministry? Father, would we be a mobilized congregation? Show us how we can best use these diverse gifts that you've given us to love and serve your church and also this surrounding community. Lord, we recognize how so many are, are looking in, watching to see how we love one another, how we care for one another, and how we care about our community. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would lift us up. We pray that you would help us to grow in maturity. We, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would find us faithful until that day when your Son returns in glory. Help us not to be infants tossed to and fro by every wave. Help us to grow up into Christ, He who is our head. O oh Lord, we long for that day when Jesus will return. And in the in-between, the in, in this time of uncertainty, in our own wrestling, would we hear your word afresh? Would we stand for what is true? But would we do so in a grace-filled and loving way? Thank you that your law is love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.